Don't have false images of your God. There's three ways we can imagine God today, and these are the three points we'll walk through. First one is we imagine our God as things he's not. Right? We're chasing false images of our love. The second way is we imagine things to be our God that are not. So that's chasing false lovers, idols. And then thirdly, we can imagine God as he is, chasing our true love. That's it. You guys ready to dive in? All right, cool. Let's jump. Number one, we imagine God as things he's not. One of the worst things that can happen in human relationships um, is when we love someone not as they are, but as we imagine them to be. An extreme example of this would be like if somebody walked up to you today and was like, dude, I really like you. You're like, oh, thank you. And they said, and when I think of you, I like to think of you as an astronaut. Brilliant at math, but really abrasive and horrible at relationships. That's an extreme example, but what would you be like? You'd be like, what? You'd probably be a little weirded out and confused and maybe frustrated. You'd be like... Dude, I, first of all, I'm not brilliant at math. I flunked it. I'm scared of heights. And I think I'm pretty good at relationships. No, but I like to think of you that way. How would that make you feel? I feel like, what are you talking about, right? So how, how should you feel? How should you feel when somebody projects an image on you? It's not always that drastic, but we do this all the time. In fact, every married couple I've ever talked to that's been married for a longer period of time, somewhere like five to 10 years, somewhere in the marriage, they realize something. They realize they didn't marry their spouse. They married a mental image of their spouse. They married a person that they thought their spouse was. And it causes all kinds of issues in marriage. You've changed. I don't feel like I even know you anymore. No, you, you never really did, because you didn't know me. You knew your mental image, your mental projecting of, uh, of me. You married an image of that person, not the actual person. Um, that never happened to me, by the way. <laughs> now, I remember I was dating Nancy, and she got a flat tire. And so I had worked at Costco Tire. So I went out there, and I you know, jacked it up, and I got under there, and I'm pulling the tire off, and it was hot, so I took my shirt off. And I look at Nancy, and she's just standing over me going like that, and I can see she's like swooning. She's like, just like, ooh, you know? And I was like, all right, this girl's into me. That's awesome. So, um, and the reason why is because Nancy, her love language is like acts of service, Right? And her dad was the type of guy, he didn't say he loved you a lot with words, but he showed that he loved you a lot with acts of service. So, so her dad would fix anything. I mean, the guy's a genius when it comes to like taking a vacuum apart and putting it together. He's brilliant at that. The only thing I knew how to do on a car was fix a tire because <laughs> that was my job in college. And so she gets married and stuff starts breaking down around the house. And I'm like, yeah, call the plumber. I don't know. What? What? I didn't do any. And, and to, like, to be, make things worse, I, my love language is words of affirmation. And so I'm just like, I'm sorry. I don't know how to fix it, but I love you. Don't tell me you love me. Show me you love me. Right? Like that extreme, was it extreme more than words? Saying I love you is not the words I... Anybody? Yeah? Yeah, that describes the first two years of my marriage. And all the married people get it. 
Like, we get that. It's like, because we all do that in our own ways. We, being, we bring these competing images of our spouse into the home with our spouse, and we kind of crush, if we're not careful, crush them under the weight of expectation of that image. That image is a lot heavier and more glorious than any human being can live up to. How do we project God? How do you imagine God? When you look at God, when you think of God, do you see God as a big old man in the clouds with a big bushy beard? Do you sense God as like an invisible force that's impersonal and floating through the galaxy? How do you see God? Is he a sky fairy? Gives you everything you want if you obey him and do what he wants? How do you see God? A lot of our conversations that we have with people are like straight out of Hollywood. They sound like Ricky Bobby. Anybody remember Talladega Nights? <laughs> Dear tiny Jesus, in your golden fleece diapers with your little tiny fat balled up fists. And then Cal says, uh, what does he say? I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. <laughs> because it says, you know, I like to be formal, but I like to party. And he says, and then he says this, why? He says, because I like to party, so I want my Jesus to party. And we laugh. That's funny. That's humorous. That's, that's part of it. But for all of us, there actually are attributes of God that we naturally emphasize and other attributes of God that we ignore or deny altogether. So if we aren't careful, we can iconize. We can make an icon out of parts of God, but we end up limiting him. And here's the problem with that. Images conceal more than they reveal. Right? So an image will reveal, but it will conceal more than it will reveal, and it will hijack your heart when you come to worship. Like for instance, if you go to paint a picture of God, will he be smiling or will he be frowning? Or will he be rocking that weird Mona Lisa vibe? What will he be doing? Because if he's smiling, that's truth, right? God is happy. God is love. God is compassionate. But isn't God also justice? Isn't God also wrath against brokenness and perpetrators who hurt innocent people? Isn't God also that? But what if you paint him with a frown? Well, then you're, you're not painting him with a smile. So, so an image is going to limit parts of God. It's only going to show aspects of who God is, but it can't contain the whole thing. Images conceal more than they reveal. And that's not saying we shouldn't make pictures, but scripture is pretty clear. We shouldn't bow down to those pictures. We shouldn't bow down to those images of God. There was a New York evangelist. His name was uh, Tom Skinner, um, famous guy. And he uh, grew up in church in Sunday school, but he never became a Christian until he was older. And when somebody asked him why, he said it was the pictures of Jesus in Sunday school. And they said, the pictures of Jesus threw you off? And he said, yeah, man, I looked at that guy in the pictures and I said, he wouldn't last one day in my neighborhood. How can I bow down and worship him? The meek, mild, approachable, hippie Jesus is only part of the truth. Scripture also paints this picture of Jesus like coming down as a vengeful warrior with a tattoo on his thigh and crushing his enemies in the wine press like grapes. Like, that's a very different picture of Jesus than most of us have hanging in our living room, right? So God is so much more than any of those one images, but that's not really the main point. The main point is deeper than that because what God is really getting at here is you should not imagine me. That word image and imagine are the same. 
And when we think about image, we think, I think, of physical images, pictures, statues, but physical images are based on what? On mental images. And when God says, you must not imagine me to be whatever you want me to be, but let your imagination be regulated by the truth as I've revealed it. Not, hey, I like to think of God as. Uh, The great theologian J.I. Packer says, the second commandment means that any statement that begins with, I like to think of God as, should never be trusted. That's the essence of this commandment. God is saying, do not imagine me as you want me to be. Don't project your mental image on me, but worship me, revere me, love me as I reveal myself to be in Scripture, as I am. So laugh at Ricky Bobby, cringe, cry for Ricky Bobby, but don't be Ricky Bobby because you will end up with a false image of God. And there's a word for that. The word for that is a word we don't use lightly, but it's called heresy. Heresy. It's seeing some of the truth, but leaving other parts out. And honestly, I think that's what our culture loves in some ways. Our culture loves to pick and choose parts of God we like. We like to reject any truth claims that seem ultimate, reject any parts that seem objective, and say, this is true no matter what. We say, ah, but what if? We naturally tend to be pickers and choosers. I think partially because, like, just look at our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson. Anybody heard of the Jefferson Bible? Thomas Jefferson, yeah, he took the Bible and he said, here's the parts I like about Jesus. I like his teaching. I like his philosophy. I like his humanitarian efforts. But these, these, all these claims about being God, all the miracles, all the supernatural, we're just going to kind of carve those out and take those out, and then we're going to have the teachings of Jesus. It's called the Jefferson Bible picking and choosing the parts of God you like. And we do the same thing. I love what God says about forgiveness, but I'm not too sure about that whole sexual ethic thing that he imposes. I love when God says we need to give to the poor around us. Uh, I'm not really too hip on giving to the church. I love what God says, that whole part about God giving you abundant life, but I don't like the way he brings abundant life. I don't like the timing and the way that he brings that into my life. I want it my way. I want it all, and I want it now. (laughs) And you end up with what we talked about last week, a cardboard cutout God who can't challenge you, who can't love you, who can't save you. So summary of the first point briefly is one way we carve images of God is we imagine God as things he's not, heresies. And we bring competing images into our exclusive relationship with God, mental projections, parts we've selected. We bring a cardboard cutout God and we prop that up in the bedroom. And we say, you're awesome, you're the God I'm gonna serve. And the problem is it's not. It's not a God. And we can't truly love him if we've substituted him for a false image. But there's another way that we carve images of God, and that is we imagine things as God that aren't. We call those idols. And they're like icons in some ways, okay? They try to capture parts of God and attributes. For instance, the golden calf. You guys remember that story? The golden calf. The golden calf, what's it represent? It's strength. Yeah, it's gold. So it represents parts of God that are true, doesn't it? God's strength, God's providence, God's prosperity, but it doesn't represent the freedom and the grace of God. Or if you look at Baal in the Old Testament, Baal was a fertility God. He represented virility. He was a God who blessed you with healthy crops and healthy kids, but he didn't quite represent God's purity or passion or personality. 
Just like icons, idols limit. They conceal more than they reveal. And they draw our heart away from God. But heresy is chasing love by bringing false images of God into your relationship. Idolatry is chasing love by going outside the relationship after other lovers. You guys see the difference? Really similar. And here's the thing. We do this all the time. Just like an icon starts in our imagination and works its way out onto the canvas, the, the, the idol starts in our heart in our imagination, and it works its way out onto a block of stone or a block of wood. What's an idol? Martin Luther said this. Martin Luther said, that to which your heart clings and entrusts itself, I say, is really your God. Anything can become an idol. An idol is anything that we elevate to God's status, even good thing. Anything that you look to that will give you hope or assurance or, or life or this thing will provide for me. This thing will give me what I'm longing for, the affirmation I need. And, and you know what? Instead of taking a long time to walk through that, let me just ask you guys. Let's, let's turn this into a dialogue real quick. What are some things that we can idolize in our life? What are some things? Success. What? Success? Success. How do we? How can we idolize success? Um, like if we, like if we're successful in life, like mm-hmm. a person, or like we feel about, like we find our value in that. Mm, so you can find your value in your success, right? Yeah. Good. What else, Marco? What's that? Our physical bodies. Yeah, we can deify them, can't we? Yeah, absolutely. How, how do we do that, Marco? What's some ways we do that? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's good. There's a lot of ways we can do that, right? How about beauty? The whole beauty culture? Yeah, if I could just get that makeup, then I will look that young, and then I will... If I could just eat this healthy $9 squeezed juice thing every day, three times a day, I will live 10 years longer, right? We, we're chasing that dream with our body. We're, just, we're looking for life in that. Yeah. Ashley. Reputation and being thought of as a good person. Anybody ever struggled with that? Yeah. And so and, well, that's a good thing. Is it bad to be thought of as a good person? Is it bad to want to be healthy? No, 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 no. What happens is we take those good things and we elevate them into God things and that makes them bad things. They become the thing we live for. They become the thing that we've got to hold on to. It's the thing that, that keeps you up at night when it's not going well or gets you up in the morning when it is. It's that thing that's driving your life, driving your heart. If you have it, you have everything you're looking for. And if you don't, your life's falling apart. Yeah, so an idol can be anything, even good things. Um, and... Idols hurt you. They bind you. They bind you into slavery. They diminish your life. Has anybody ever been there before? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But idolatry doesn't just hurt you. You know who else it hurts? It hurts God. Have you ever thought about that? You ever thought about the fact that your idolatry hurts God? Idolatry is, in Scripture, you know what it's known as? Adultery. God says idolatry is adultery. In the text we just read in Jeremiah 31, 32, he says this, my covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
So God says, our relationship, my relationship with you is like a marriage, and I'm like a groom, and you're like a bride, and together we're like a family. We have this marriage relationship, and idolatry is adultery. So God is unhappy about idolatry, to say the least. And can you blame him? I mean, can you imagine if Nancy came over to dinner this week and just brought her boyfriend with her? Would I be all just chill about that? Like, oh, yeah, nice to meet you, yeah. What do you do for a living? You know? No way. Why? Love is jealous. Love is passionate. Love is exclusive. Love is like a marriage. And God is like a husband and his people are like a bride that he loves. Imagine, ladies, you're on your wedding day, right? And your groom's standing up there and you start walking up the aisle with your extra boyfriend on your arm. If he doesn't look ticked off in his eyes, don't marry him. He doesn't, that's not love. He's not the right kind of guy for you. Trust me. He doesn't love you. God is a jealous God just like that. Why? Because he loves his bride. Let me ask you this. Would you subject yourself willingly to a relationship where you knew your spouse would repeatedly cheat on you? How many of you guys would just be like, yeah, sign me up. Yes. I've been waiting for this opportunity. No way. But you know there's a guy in the Bible who did? In fact, if you've been following along in CBR, um, which, just a quick aside, one of the things that we do here in our church for personal discipleship every day is, is CBR community Bible reading. We have some new journals coming in. If you want one, let us know what order you want. Talk to one of your gospel community leaders. But it's a way that our whole church is reading scripture together literally on the same page every day. And we just read through Hosea. Hosea, what a story. I want you to catch a glimpse of God's heart in the story of Hosea. Hosea is this prophet, and leading up to Hosea's time in Israel's history, God said, I want you to be mine, and I want to be yours. So don't worship all the idols that are in the land surrounding you. Exclusivity, right? We're married. And then what happens? Did did they stay true to that? Did they just never worship idols? No, they fell out of love with God. They chased after idols over and over until, and God would pull back and say, okay, if that's what you want, if you want those idols to be your God, that's fine. Let's see how they save you. Let's see how they deliver you. And then their life would fall apart as a nation and they'd come crying back to God and repent. And he would bring them back and he would restore the relationship and he would renew the covenant. But then what happened? Often within a generation, they were right back at it right back at it. So you've got this, this history of broken relationship for hundreds of years leading up to Hosea. And God finally says, okay, I'm going to paint a picture through a guy's life. Hosea, and my prophet, I want you to go out and marry a prostitute. Bring her into your home. Make her your wife. Have babies with her. So he does. And you know what happened? Her, her name's Gomer, which he should have known right there. Like just, I'm, apologies if your name's Gomer. Sorry. So, it's a bad joke. Um, And so he brings her into his house. They have babies, but guess what? She just can't live the straight life. She can't stop. She keeps going out and chasing after her lovers and breaking Hosea's heart and breaking the family's heart. And eventually, what's Hosea do? He lets her go. And she ends up getting sold back into slavery, into prostitution. And God says, go get her back. Go get her back. 
And he goes down to the auction block and buys her back and brings her back into his house. And God is using this story. God is using this life to paint a picture to the culture around of the way in which you haven't been faithful to me, the way in which you've chased after idols. And there's this verse. Actually, I'm just going to walk through parts of Hosea chapter 2. Look at the idolatry and how it equals adultery here. What's God say in Hosea 2, 5? Their mother has been unfaithful, and he's conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. So who's she saying provides for her? The lovers. The lovers, yeah. God doesn't play that. God's hurt. God's angry. What's he say? Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will say, okay, I'm going to go back to my husband as at first. For then was better. I was better off than now. Wow. God is hurt. God's angry. Why? He loves his bride. She's deceived. She's living a really horrible existence and he doesn't want that for her. Look at verse 8. This, this breaks my heart. She's not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Time out. Wow. God gives them silver and gold and they use it to craft and worship an idol. Everything we idolize, the Bible's clear, is God's creation. We take created things and we prop it up and say, this will give me life. This will give me significance. This is what I crave. Not him, his gifts. But think of it from God's perspective. His bride is out there chasing other lovers that will not satisfy her. And she's giving them credit for the wine and pleasure while her husband's back home alone and brokenhearted. She's chasing after them under the illusion that they're the source when what she seeks was back home the whole time. She's, she's, caught, she's believing lies and it's distorting her life. Why do you keep looking for what you have already? So God is gonna give her tough love. God says, you want them, you can have them. Here's what he says, verse nine. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens. And my new wine, when it's ready, I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I'll expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers and no one will take her out of my hands. You sense the jealousy and the passion there? He steps back and he says, I'm gonna give her over to the lie. She wants that lie, she can believe it. But God doesn't stop there. Here's good news, God doesn't give up. God loves us, God pursues. He woos her back, verse 14. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Then I will give her back her vineyards and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she will respond as in the days of her youth and the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips, the false gods. No longer will their names be invoked. And then God promises this picture of hope. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. 
I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. What is God talking about here? He's talking about marriage and adultery and restoration. And he's saying, you broke my heart. You chased after lovers, but I still love you. I still want you back. Even though you hurt me, even though you angered me, I'm going to do drastic things to restore your life. Not because I'm angry, but because I love you, because I'm for you, because you're my bride. You're living a lie. You're chasing idols that will enslave you, but what you're looking for, you have right here at home. Quit believing the lie that life is somehow better out there away from me. So what can we do? How do we deal with these idols and heresies in our life? Point number three, Jesus seeing our God as he is chasing our true love. You need to see God's love for you. You need to see God's heart for you. You need to see God's provision and grace and power and goodness. But where can you see it? I love this passage, Colossians 1, 15. And speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, he's the image. He's the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body in the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see what that's saying? Heresies and idols are false images of God. God says, don't make them, don't worship them, don't bow down to them. They're gonna diminish your life, they're gonna ruin your life. But God also understands our desire and our need for an image. So he gave us Jesus. God gave us Jesus. In verse 15, that word image is actually the word icon. Interesting note. God says, don't make an image because I'm making an image. And he won't limit or distort your understanding of me. In fact, he's gonna perfect your understanding of me. When you look at Jesus, you're not gonna see parts of God concealed. You're gonna see more truth. Your eyes are gonna be opened more. Your life's gonna be changed more because he is the image of the invisible God. God in the flesh. Colossians 2.9 says the fullness of God dwelt in him bodily. Jesus is talking to his disciples at the Last Supper and Thomas is asking him, hey, you keep talking about the Father. When are you going to show us the Father? Hey, hey, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. And Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to see God, look where? Jesus. And the good news is this. Seeing him as he is actually gets rid of distortions. It's just like marriage. Just like marriage, right? You get married to somebody, you have your false images of who they are, but as you get to know your spouse, the more you see them, the more you experience them, the more you get to know them, the more the false images start to be replaced by the true image. And then the more you get to know them, the more you start to fall in love with them, hopefully. Hopefully that happens. And as that happens, as you start to fall in love with them, guess what? The draw of all those other loves out there, it just starts to fade because you're falling in love with this one. 
Same with God. When we don't see him clearly, we worship an image our heart projects or we worship an idol. You guys tracking? So seeing him as he is eliminates competing images. And here's an easy way to remember how to do this. Um, Some steps that we're going to actually, in a few minutes when we take communion, we're going to walk through this as a community and you'll get a chance to practice this. But here's, here's an easy way to do this, to replace idols with, with God at the center of your life. First of all, find an area of your life you're struggling in. Maybe it's negative emotions. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a broken cycle. Whatever it is, find that area that you're struggling in. And then underneath that is always a false view of God. Either a heresy, a short truncated view of God or an idol that you're worshiping instead of God, find that false image of God. What is it that you're not believing about God underneath that? And then replace it with Jesus. Replace it with Jesus. What is the truth about God? How does the truth of who God is in Jesus Christ free you? Um, Trying to decide with it. Give an example of this Um, really quick. So say, for instance, you're struggling. Here's an easy one with anxiety. You're worried all the time. You're freaking out. Um, about something at work. Well, what's going on under that? Well, you're, tr- you're trying to be in control, aren't you? You're trying to be in control of your life. You're freaking out because you can't control some kind of circumstance out there. Well, what belief about God are you holding under that? Probably the belief that God somehow is not actually in control of that. That's why you're trying to be in control because you can't trust his control. Maybe you don't believe he's in control or maybe you believe he's in control, but he's just not good that he doesn't care about you, that he doesn't have your best interests at heart. Either way, you've got some kind of false view of God. God's either not control or God's not good. He doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. So what happens when you look at Jesus? Does Jesus show us how God is in control? Yeah? Does Jesus show us how God is good and loves us? Yeah. So when you look for, this is just an easy way of doing this, but this can be a lot more complex. Look for the areas of your life you're struggling in. Look for the false beliefs about God underneath them and replace them with Jesus. Clear? We're going to practice this during communion. I do want to make a couple of other points, though, because here's the problem. A lot of you see this, and you love God, and you're zealous for God, but here's one of the things that can happen. You're like, man, that's right. Let's get some idols. And you go out, and you idol hunt, right? Where's them idols in my heart? I'm going to find them. <laughs> Sorry. Kenny's my idol. <laughs> and then what happens? Man, if you're not careful, and I've done this, I know firsthand experience, that becomes the way of life. Your Christianity, your whole walk with God, instead of being defined by your love for God, becomes defined by your ability to carry a 2020 and aim for idols. You've got your axe out, and you look like a crazy man walking down the halls of your heart looking for idols. What's the problem? You're staring down at your sin instead of looking up at your Savior, right? You're focused so much on repentance, you've forgotten about belief. And what ends up happening is you start worshiping without meaning to this moralism, this Phariseeism, this I'm going to find the sin, I'm going to hunt it down, I'm going to root it out. It's good to root out sin. It's not good if that was your relationship, the content of your... Can you imagine if that was the content of your relationship with your spouse? Like, just like, yeah, I'm really tempted. Um, 
with these other chicks. So what do you do? Well, I don't have time for my wife right now. Sorry, honey, I won't be home for dinner. I'm out hunting. <laughs> Hopefully not hunting now. <laughs> That's a little too Dexter Morgan. But I'm out making sure. I'm like obsessed with making sure I'm not cheating on my spouse. And that becomes the content of your relationship. Would that be love? Would that be a healthy? Would you actually be relating to the one you love? No. We do the same thing with God when we get into that sin management mode, right? That's not healthy. So don't let idol hunting become the new norm of your life, okay? Is that, is that all right? Um, the second thing is the way we hunt idols. I'm just going to talk about this. I'm leaving my notes back there. The way we hunt idols... Um, I think the way we generally think about hunting idols is this. God says get rid of them, chop them down, knock them off the altar, burn them, get rid of them, right? And so what we normally do is we find the things in our life that are causing us to worship something else than God. We, we, we look at the area we're struggling, we look underneath, we find the idol, the false image of God, and we say, man, I got to get rid of that. I had a friend who played basketball professionally. He was really good. That lifestyle is a difficult lifestyle to live if you're a Christian. So all the horned up, all the doing drugs, all that stuff. He left basketball when he came back to church. And you know what he said? He made a vow to God, I'm never touching a basketball again as long as I live. Okay. That definitely, that, I get it. I get it. There are certain instances. If God tells you to do something like that, do it. If God tells you to. There's certain instances where somebody's got chemical dependency on something. And you're like, man, I just can't touch alcohol again ever. Then don't. That's okay. That's, an, that's one approach, and that's a healthy approach. It's a biblical approach, and often the Bible tells us to do that, especially for a time. Okay? But that's not the only approach, because that, if, if we just stick there, we end up just idol hunting all the time. We become defined. You know, what's the, what's the thing you say at AA? My name is Vince and I'm a what? That's an identity statement. It doesn't say I'm a son of the king. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm redeemed. It says I'm defined by my sin for the rest of my life. That's not the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. That's not, that's not the gospel. So I just, I'm not saying don't go to AA. AA has done awesome stuff for people. AA was crafted by Christians. I'm, I'm totally in support of AA. Okay, but the, the other thing that can happen is your life becomes identified, defined by idols instead of Jesus. Okay, so what do you do? The answer to idolatry is worship. You worshiped your way into this mess, we can worship our way out of it. We worship false gods to get here. We can worship Jesus to get out of it. I remember um, I, was, I was pastoring this a few years ago, and I had this time where I took a sabbatical um, for, for about a month. And in that time, I read the story of the rich young ruler. And um, I never really identified with that story because I grew up in the hood, and the guy like gives all his money away. Uh, or God, Jesus tells him to give all his money away, sell it to the poor and follow him. And I was like, yeah, but I've never had money, so I don't really relate. But then God brought that up into my heart when I was on sabbatical. So I started studying the story 
And um, I was like, yeah, but I've already done this. My wife and I had a store. I sold it. Now I'm a poor church planner. I've already done this. And God said, look deeper. So I started looking deeper and God said to me, what are your riches? Okay, what's become my riches now? Um, My wife and kids, the love I get from them. Ministry itself, the identity I get from it. This, I had started a company at the time that was a nonprofit, and it's like, man, all this work I'm doing and the security that comes from that and also the, uh, the approval and the affirmation, those are, those are the things. Those are on the trophy. Those are the trophies that are on the mantle of my heart. Those are my riches. And I felt the Holy Spirit say, walk away from that. Now, I knew what he wasn't. He wasn't telling me to walk away from my family, obviously. He was telling me to walk away from the idol my family had become. He wasn't telling me to walk away from ministry, but the idol ministry had become. He was telling me to walk away from all these things that had begun to define my life. And I remember I was sitting there and I was thinking about that and um, I realized that it's not always as easy as just saying, I'm gonna put that thing away from me and never touch it again. God was telling me, I want you to stop being an idolater through the things that you have been worshiping. And that's, that's kind of hard. That's kind of like telling an alcoholic to s- stop being an alcoholic while he's drinking that beer and just keep drinking it, but don't be addicted. It's like, how do you do that? The answer is worship. The answer is who's at the center of what you're doing. God's given you a good gift. What is, I want you to think about it in your life. What is a good gift that God has given you that maybe you've elevated to the status of God and started worshiping? I just want you to think about it and kind of hold it in your head as we talk about this. Because here's what ended up happening. I was worshiping those good gifts God had given me and I had to lower them back down off the throne of my heart and worship him through them. Does that make sense? This picture God gave me during this time was like a a solar system. Solar system in the middle of it's what? The sun, yeah, soul, Latin, exactly. And everything's kind of rotating around that, right? In elliptical patterns, beautiful, orchestrated. It's amazing, And God was like, here's what you keep doing, Vince. You keep saying, hey, son, I'm the earth. Get out of the middle. I want to be in the middle of the solar system. And guess what happens when when the earth gets in the middle of the solar system? It doesn't have the gravitational pull, does it? Everything just starts flying off course, crashing into stuff. It's chaos. It's insanity. And you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't hold my life together. God, get back in the center. And he says, okay, I will but you have to be willing to rotate around me again. You have to be willing to let me put everything back in its proper place, not have everything rotate around you. Does that make sense? And so, man, so I I, I said, all right. So um, God said, here's the thing, Vince. You weren't created to worship the love you get from Nancy and the kids. I gave you that love to point you to me, to my love. You were created to worship me through it, to love me through it. Then, when you start doing that, then you can actually start to love God as he is, and you can love people as they are. You can begin to enjoy them. You don't idolize them when they're perfect, and then when they fail you, you demonize them anymore. You can actually love them as they are. You can love them in the proper place that God meant for them to be in your life. Because God's the center of your life, and he's putting everything where it's supposed to be. Are we tracking? So that's the key to displacing idols. Heresies of our heart is worship. Worship got us into this mess and worship will get us out. So 
question as we start wrapping up and going toward the gospel. Where do we see the image of the invisible God? Remind me. In Jesus. Seeing God as he is in Christ, bringing God to the center. Let that love of your spouse point you to the love of God. Let that wine in your glass point you to the intoxicating goodness of our creator God who loved you and gave himself for you. It's impossible to idolize created things when you're enjoying God through them. It only becomes idolatry when you replace God with them. Does that make sense? Cool. So, for instance, you have a job, you get money from your work, but where's that money ultimately coming from? God. Right. And so what happens, though, is we start to look at our job, we start to look at that as our provider, and then we idolize it, and we replace God with it. And that's not healthy. Idolatry makes the job a functional savior. Idolatry makes your relationship codependent. Idolatry makes the wine addictive. Idolatry makes your success the the source of your identity. Idolatry destroys and diminishes your life because you aren't living for God anymore. He's not at the center. You are. And idolatry is adultery that brings us back into slavery. We're like Gomer selling ourselves back into prostitution. You weren't created for it. But there's, there's some bad news here before we get to the good news. And that is just choosing to worship isn't enough. Just you doing something isn't enough. It won't save your life. Why? We all do this. We all do this. Um, it's, it's equally as important why you're doing it is equally as important as what you're actually doing. If we aren't careful, we end up saying this. We end up saying, okay, so I struggle with this addiction over here. I'm going to try to get my life back on track and I'm going to use God to do it. Does that make sense? And then what are you doing? You've just switched idols. I, 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 you know what? I'm struggling with this addiction over here, but if I can start worshiping God right, then I won't struggle with this addiction anymore. God just became your, your new AA. Okay? Who's still at the center of all this? You are. So, so the thing that's going to fix you isn't what you do. What's the good news here? How can we actually get a new heart? Well, the answer is Jesus. We have to look at Jesus. We have to love him. And, and the gospel comes to fruition here in this passage we read at the beginning. Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah 31. I will make a new covenant. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. When did that happen? When did God write his law in our heart? When did God make a new covenant with us? Hebrews chapter 10 verses 14 through 18. We'll close with this. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts. So that's referring back to Jeremiah. And then he says this, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Where do we get a new heart? Where do we get a new covenant? When we've broken the old one. How do we wear a nice white dress when we walk down the aisle, when we burn the old white dress and we broke our vows and we left our lover out in the cold? How? The answer is Jesus. 
Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the new covenant. When we lived like Hosea's wife, Gomer, when we couldn't live the straight life, when we broke every vow that we had made to God, what did our God do? Well, first he kept his vows. He kept his side of the bargain. And then he came himself and he kept our vows for us. He was faithful when we couldn't be He renewed our vows for us while we were busy breaking them. While I was out there loving another lover, God was busy keeping my vows for me through Jesus. He restored us. He healed our marriage while we were throwing our infidelities in his face. He did all the work. Guys, it's not about what you do today. It's about what's been done for you. Remember what God said about Israel and Hosea? He said, I'll show them tough love. I'll lead them out into the wilderness. I'll tear off their clothes. I'll expose them as they are. I'll turn them over to their false lovers so they have their way with them. Here's the the good news. Jesus himself came. Jesus went into our wilderness for us. He took on the weight of our unfaithfulness. He took on the punishment of our idolatry. He, He took on the shame and the pain of our lewdness and and the heartbreak that should have been ours, the abandonment that should have been ours. We should have been left out in the cold away from God forever. And Jesus took that on. He was stripped. He was humiliated. He was bludgeoned. Why? Because he loves you. Jesus Christ loves you. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the love you looked for all your life. He's the intoxication you sought in your substances. He's the security you saw in your successes. He's the truth that sets us free from the lies. He's God. And he's pursuing your heart today. Will you close your eyes with me? Jesus is pursuing your heart today. Will you give it to him? Will you let go of your false images of God today and lay a hold of what you're really seeking in him? Will you look to him more and more to see him more clearly, to get to know him, to trust him, to worship him, to love him more deeply because everything you're looking for, you already have in him. Do you believe that today? That's the gospel. That's the only truth that'll actually change your heart. Right now, we're gonna come take communion. And the first time Jesus gave communion, he said this. He said, Luke 22, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. I'm going to pray real quick, and then I'm going to give us some directions on communion. Thank you for your blood, God. Thank you for your sacrifice. What a precious price you paid to have us, to purchase us back from the auction block of slavery when we were running out, chasing after our false lovers, you loved us. You did everything you could to bring us back home, to cleanse us, to forgive us, to restore us. You kept our side of the bargain when we couldn't even keep it. Thank you so much for your love today. I pray that as we come down and take communion that you would show us the areas that we're not trusting in you and not believing in your love. Show us the areas where we've substituted the living God for an idol, where we've settled for a false image of who you are. 
I pray that you would speak to us tenderly like you, like you said you would to Israel today, that you would allure us, that you would draw us back to yourself. I pray if there's some hearts of stone here today, that you would make them hearts of flesh, that you would woo them back to you. I pray that you would do a sovereign work in the next few minutes as we take communion, God. Change our hearts, transform us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today as we take communion,